Welcome to Murderers and Monsters. Before we begin today, a brief warning. Contents may be disturbing, and language may be explicit and inappropriate for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Today we're going to be talking about Robert Christian Hansen, also known as the Butcher Baker. My references today are Wikipedia, Murderpedia, Commons Wiki, and I got a book off of the Kindle. Um, it was called The Butcher Baker by Geneva. Geneva. I'm not sure. I hope I didn't butcher that. I'm sorry. Ortez. Um, it was very informative. It was a good book. I also listened to several podcasts, including Crime Junkie, Morbid, True Crime All the Time, and Wicked and Grim. Um, Robert Hansen was born February the 15th, 1939. He was the oldest of the two children um, that the Hanson family had. His dad, Christian, was pretty short-tempered and domineering. He was also an in- immigrant from Denmark. His mother, Edna, she was soft-spoken and really the only parent that her son could turn to when he needed some comfort. The family lived in Pocahontas, Iowa in the 1950s. Pocahontas had about 2,000 people. In 1949, the Hansons opened a bakery. And the business was well-received by the people of Pocahontas, and it soon became a staple of the community. Though it was not uncommon at the time for young boys to be put to work, Robert's father was a very difficult boss. He was strict and demanding, and he often made Robert feel worthless for his mistakes. Robert got up early every morning at about 2 a.m. to do a shift before school at the bakery, and this often left him too exhausted, exhausted to learn causing him to fall asleep in the afternoon classes, and his grades were consistently average. At some point in his childhood, Robert developed a serious stutter, a trait his father had. This speech impediment was made worse whenever he got into trouble by his parents, and whenever they figured out that he was also left-handed, his father would force him to use his right. I've never understood that. I've heard a lot of stories about people forcing a left-handed child to use their right. I just never really have understood it. Um, And I was also curious about the stuttering because of his father. Um, His father also had it. So I looked it up, and it says that um, stuttering does tend to run in families and that it appears that stuttering can result from an inherited or genetic abnormality. I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, By the time Robert was a teenager, he had become awkward and gawky. He developed painful acne that was so severe that it would leave his face pockmarked with scars for the rest of his life. And this often made him the target of bullying. He would later say, I looked like a freak and I sounded like one too. Um, the girls were some of the biggest bullies throughout school, especially in high school. Um, he would say uh, that he had he was deeply unpopular and never went on more than maybe a handful of dates. He said, how was I supposed to get girls to like me when I couldn't even speak to them like the other guys? It was a formative experience, and as he grew older, he began to resent women Now, with all that being said, we can feel bad for the young man and the boy that he was as far as the bullying and the acne was concerned, but fuck the dude that he became afterwards, okay? That's all I can say. Unfortunately, during most of his teenage years, he would remain an outcast, and it was this loneliness loneliness that got him interested in more solitary activities like hunting and fishing and archery, and he would practice these skills often to the point where he would get really adept at it and soon he had learned how to kill animals quietly and effectively. 
The nightmare that was his high school time ended in May of 1957, when he graduated. But his life pretty much stayed the same otherwise. He still worked with his father at the bakery, and he did little socialization with others. So he sought to change this by joining the Army Reserves. He was sent to Fort Dix in New Jersey, where he actually was able to taste freedom for the first time. It was the first time he was out from under his father, and he was finally able to try new things. One of those things was sex. He had his first sexual experience when he won an all-expense-paid weekend in New York City. Um, It was during this time that him and one of his fellow soldiers ended up in a hotel room with a pair of prostitutes. And it wasn't long after that that Robert returned to Pocahontas. Though he still worked at the bakery, he did get his own apartment, and he moved out on his own. Now, he'd been out of school for a few years, but he still harbored a lot of resentment toward his former classmates in the school. And beneath his mild-mannered exterior lay a rage that would later shape him into the killer that he became. He had a real talent for disguising the darker parts of his personality and for presenting himself as an upstanding citizen. In 1959, he became a drill instructor for the Pocahontas Junior Police, and he would teach the young recruits all about law enforcement, firearms, first aid, and other important things. Robert also got his first girlfriend. Her name was Phoebe, and her family belonged to the same Lutheran church as the Hanson family. Robert and Phoebe made a good match because both were timid and awkward. They'd been extremely unpopular in high school, and the relationship between the two blossomed during that year. Robert had even thought about marrying her. And, you know, for a little while, life seemed to be looking up for him. But that would all soon change. In 1960-something happened that shook Pocahontas to its core. Late in the afternoon, a vocational agricultural teacher, Ron Walker, arrived for an adult class of the day. He parked his car between the ag shop and the bus barn where the town's school buses were located. Then something strange outside the window caught his attention. He realized that it was a cloud of black smoke and that the bus barn was on fire. By the time the firemen arrived, the north side of the barn was on fire and completely ablaze. And the buses in that area were done for us, so they focused all their efforts on salvaging what they could from the south side. One of the firemen actually tried to drive a bus out and the gas tank exploded, injuring him. Now the police didn't have any idea who could have deliberately set the barn on fire, but a certain volunteer fireman with a bad stutter had an idea. Robert had been planning the fire for a few days, and it was eventually found out that it was Robert who had actually done it. And he had done it out of revenge for what had happened to him in high school. His family immediately hired a man named Frank Shaw, who was the best attorney in town. Robert was charged with arson on May 29th of 1961. He spent three days in custody before his mama posted a $2,500 bail. The main reason she posted it was because it was time for church and she was not going to let him miss church, jail, or no jail. Robert and Phoebe were actually married that very evening, and they went to spend a week down in Florida for their honeymoon. However, Robert still had to answer for his crimes, and the evidence was stacked against him. He just skipped the trial and pleaded guilty. He said, and I quote, I guess I burned down the barn because I hated school with such a divine passion. I would do whatever I could think of to get back at that monster school and that it did me a personal wrong, end quote. All right, Robert. He was sentenced to three years in the state reformatory in Anamosa on October the 9th of 1961. Phoebe immediately filed for divorce, and his humiliated parents sold their bakery. 
when Robert met with the psychiatrist for the first time when he was in jail, he spoke at length about his troubled high school years and the bullying, and that ever since then, he had developed an excessive need to get back at the school. Um, he also said that he wanted to hurt the girls who had rejected and mocked him because he had a stutter and because of his acne. Well, such talk didn't go over well with the psychiatrist, and he described Robert as having an infantile personality. When he was denied for parole for the first time, he realized that he had made a mistake about talking to his psychiatrist and telling him all the things that he had, so he knew he had to play the game to be able to get out of jail. So from that point on, he was a model prisoner. He knew, uh, he, excuse me, he took a typing job under one of the staff counselors, and he wrote letters on behalf of the inmates, and he even offered religious guidance. He was able to receive speech therapy from the University of Iowa, and although his speech was improving, he still had violent fantasies and an antisocial personality, but he was really good at hiding it, or so the court believed. That worked, and he was actually able to be released in early May of 1963. After he was released, he joined his family in Minnesota, where they had moved out of embarrassment. While he was there, he met a woman named Darla Heinrichsen. She was a tall, smart girl who Robert came to learn also um, was from Pocahontas and even belonged to the same Lutheran church as he and his family. Although he was four years older than her, he was surprised that they hadn't met before. Robert was pockmarked and a stutterer. Darla was nearly six feet tall, and she always stood out, and not in the ways that made her popular. She was also known as an awkward loner in school, so she was pretty empathetic to Robert and would listen to his stories about his unhappy adolescence. So with the shared love of the outdoors that both of them had, <clears throat> excuse me, the two soon began dating. By the end of the summer, they planned to get married despite the disapproval from Darla's family, and they did end up finally getting married. Robert had a few menial jobs here and there, but he had also begun, begun to show signs of psychopathic personality. He was now afflicted with a nearly irresistible need to steal, but he was a careful thief, knowing that if he got found out that he would not be able to explain it to his wife. So he took to hiding things that he had stolen at the place where he was working at the time. But on February 22nd of 1965, Robert was arrested for stealing $11 worth of fishing lures from a sporting goods store. He made a plea and tried to get his employer to bail him out so that his wife wouldn't find out, but she did. But Darla being the dutiful wife, she decided to stay by his side. She even convinced their pastor to stick up for Robert, and the charges were later dropped. It was around this time that he realized that a good image and a good reputation could help him out of trouble. And although he had a few close calls after that, it still didn't deter Robert from stealing. This sudden and intense desire to steal had come mostly from thrill-seeking, a possible sign of sociopathy. He felt no remorse for his actions, and he didn't even really have a reason to steal. He later explained that getting away with the crimes would cause him to nearly ejaculate from the thrill, and he also didn't like to spend money on anything. These behaviors would stick with him for the rest of his life, but they would soon be overshadowed by his darker urges. In the early 1960s, when Robert and Darla decided to move to Anchorage, Alaska, excuse me, it was in the early 1960s when Darla and Robert would move to Alaska. And in 1971, Darla would become pregnant with their first child, Christy. While Darla was busy with motherhood and her career, Robert threw himself into hunting. 
He began to pull away emotionally from his family, and he and Darla started to grow distant. She knew that her husband was becoming a different person, but she had no idea of the kind of person that he would eventually become. Now I'm going to begin talking about the women who would eventually become Robert's victims. On November the 15th of 1971, Robert was driving when he stopped at a red light and noticed an attractive woman in the car next to him. She called him looking, and she gave him a smile, just a polite smile. And once the light changed, she drove off. But Robert had seen something more in the smile, and he was going to find out what. And there was actually nothing. She hadn't done anything. But all in it was all in Robert's mind. <clears throat> but her name was Susie Hippard. Hippard. I'm sorry if I didn't say that correctly. Um, she was an 18-year-old girl, and she was a real estate receptionist. When she had gotten off work that day, she was eager to get home and take a hot shower and just enjoy the rest of her day. But before she could, she heard someone knocking at the door. So she wrapped herself in a towel and hurried to see who it was. Maybe it was one of her roommates that had forgotten something, or maybe even someone that they had been expecting. When she opened the door, though, she found herself face-to-face with the man that she had smiled at. This really freaked her out. Robert asked her with a stutter about another apartment in the building, and she felt sorry for him, and she reluctantly let him in so that he could look at the um, the phone book and see if he could find the information, quote-unquote, that he was looking for. Um, but when he looked back at her, her, his eyes were cold, and his face was covered in deep scars. He told her he'd been unable unable to find the information and that he'd been and that he and then he oh my goodness am I stroking out here and then he boldly asked her if she would go on a date with him she shook her head and told him that she was actually engaged and thankfully without saying another word to her uh he left a few days later um Susie had actually forgotten all about the man Um, that had followed her home. I mean, she had a busy life, and on this day, she was out running errands for one of her roommates. It was really, really early in the morning, and as she pulled in the parking spot uh, coming back to her apartment, the headlights of her car revealed a person who then took off and went behind the building. Well, Susie got this really creepy feeling, and she gingerly stepped out of the car, but her foot had barely touched the ground when the man jumped back out and was pointing a gun at her. She freaked out and started screaming, and he told her she better be quiet or he would blow her brains out. But, I mean, by this time, she was totally panicked, and she screamed again. And luckily, one of her roommates heard her and ran to the window and saw what was happening. She opened up the window, and she screamed out to Robert that she was calling the police, but he didn't even pay any attention to the interruption. He pushed the end of his gun into her back and forced her into his car. He leaned in, and he said, I'm taking you to a place where we can be alone. But suddenly he heard police sirens, and he turned and ran off into the darkness. When the responding officers got there, they asked her what had happened, but she was so shaken that she couldn't speak. After a few minutes, she finally got to her feet and tried to calm down. They took her inside her apartment, and she explained that a stranger that she had actually smiled at at a red light had followed her home and asked her on a date. But when she'd rejected him, um, this time he'd shown up with a gun. She gave them a full description of Robert and said that he'd been wearing glasses and an orange hunting cap and a green army jacket. And although she was unharmed, they went ahead and searched the area anyway. They located a man walking down the road, and the police pulled over and questioned the man who identified himself as Robert Hansen. 
When they asked him about why he was walking around so early in the morning, he told them that he had been out driving and that he had started to feel dizzy. So he stopped and decided to just take a little walk around just to get some fresh air. He fit the description that Susie had given them, so they ordered him into the car and drove him back to Susie's apartment, where she looked at him and identified him as her attacker. They found the gun and the clothing that Susie had described in his car, and they ended up taking him down to the police department. They booked him on the charge of assault with a deadly weapon, and the only way that he could think of not to go to jail and not let his wife find out, um, he said, I think I, I think I had a blackout. I might have been involved, but my memory is gone. And if I did, then I definitely need help. Unfortunately for Robert, this time his little trick didn't work. And he was held until the preliminary hearing on December the 2nd. Susie and the officers testified against him. And the prosecutor wanted a bail of at least $2,000 to keep him in jail. But Robert's defense attorney suggested that uh, the opposite happened. He would go on to say that Robert was a family man and he loved his wife and child. And not only uh, that, but he'd always had steady employment. He owned his own house. He had a good trade. And that he was a decent person who, hap- who just happened to get caught up in something unsavory. And believe it or not, they would eventually end up letting him out as long as he agreed to go to the Langdon Psychiatric Hospital to get psychiatric help, the, the psychiatric help that he needed. Um, it ended up working, and he eventually uh, was released with just a slap on the hand. And this is kind of a, a running uh, scene with Robert. He gets in trouble. He gets out with no consequences for anything that he does. Um, when Robert Hansen found his next victim... And this time he was determined not to make the same mistakes that he had made with Susie. He saw her six days before Christmas. Winter in Alaska is a brutal time with temperatures that would fall so low that just everyday life would become a struggle. Her name was Barbara Fields. She was driving home in the early morning hours of December the 19th. On this day, she stopped at the Nevada Cafe and thought, with the temperatures being so cold, it would be nice to have a hot tea. So she left her car, she left the engine running, and never even noticed the silver Pontiac that pulled into the space beside her. Robert got out and blocked her way into the cafe. He attempted to speak to her, um, but whatever he was trying to say was nearly incomprehensible. Barbara noticed that he seemed very nervous, and it seemed like he was trying to ask her out, but Barbara wasn't interested. That's when he pulled out his gun and he told her, Now you listen to me, and you do what I say and don't scream. Well, Barbara complied, and he pushed her toward his car. She got in the front seat and sat in fear as he pulled out of the parking lot. He was becoming extremely bolder now that he had finally gotten a woman into his car. He told her, If we get stopped by the cops, don't do or say anything, or I'll have to shoot them. Do you understand? When she was too scared to to answer him, he hit her. He said, Do you understand? And she agreed, and for a while they just drove in silence. Later, he pulled off to the side of the road and stopped the engine of the car. From the pocket of his jacket, he pulled out some leather shoelaces, and he ordered her to get down on her knees in front of the dashboard. He grabbed her arms, and she cried out in pain as he tied her wrists tightly, uh, and the strain on her... Tied her wrists tightly. I'm sorry, I lost my place. And he hit her again, and she was silent as he tied her legs. It was a long drive to the Kenai Peninsula, and the strain on her wrist was so bad that she begged him to untie her. She promised that she wouldn't fight if he would just have her arms in front of her, but he didn't care about her pain and instead put her in the back seat for the rest of the drive. Barbara didn't dare say a word. 
He stopped his car somewhere along the Indian road and turned to look at her. He crawled out of the driver's seat and got close to her, and Barbara expected the worst, but instead he asked for permission to rip off her bra. For a moment, she was at a loss for words. Then she asked him not to because she said it was expensive and that she had only recently bought it. So he untied her and ordered her to take it off herself along with the rest of her clothing. She thought he was going to rape her right there on the highway, and desperate to put off what was coming, she protested again, telling him that she didn't want to do it in the car, and could they wait until they got somewhere more private, such as a motel. Robert, who seemed to swing from violent predator to meek and polite in a second, stopped himself and actually drove on. She realized that if she were able, if she were going to survive this, she would have to make some very careful negotiations with her captor. When she did, as she was told, he would seem placated, so she worked up the courage to ask him for a cigarette. He agreed, telling her that she had been good, and stopped at a cafe, where he went in to get them some cigarettes. Before he did so, he actually tied her still-naked body to the car door, and then he grabbed the knife from under the front seat and took it with him. When Robert returned to the car with two packs of cigarettes, a rather large amount for what she hoped would be a short time together, she realized he was probably planning to keep her for longer. After they smoked a cigarette, he put her in the back again and drove until they were roughly 80 miles outside of Anchorage. When the car stopped, Barbara's fear shot back up. The predator side of Robert was back. He ordered her to sit up so that he could grab her. He didn't hurt her, but he did run run his hands all over her body and pressed his lips to hers. She closed her eyes and tried to ignore the disgust and humiliation that she was feeling. And after an agonizing 15 minutes or so, he stopped and told her to get dressed again and that they were headed somewhere else. He ended up taking her to the Sunrise Inn. And as he entered, he reminded her not to attract any attention. He left her hands tied beneath her uh, dress and her coat. They were given room number four, and Robert went in and checked the windows. There was nothing that she could use to free herself or use as a weapon. When she used the bathroom, he ordered her to take a bath and to keep the door open so that he could watch. Barbara had already expected what would happen next. She was still wet from her bath when he put her on the bed and tied her limbs to the posts. When he stripped off his own clothing, she noticed that there was something strange about his penis. It was erect, but it was short and thick, and the tip appeared to be deformed. She would later say that it was unlike any penis that she had seen before, but she kept this observation to herself. Just as she had suspected, it was was time for the worst part. She couldn't fight back, and she couldn't scream as he held her down. He was going to rape her, and he was going to make sure she felt it. He was not going to let her mind wander. He hit her repeatedly, demanding that she stay focused and try harder. Fear kept her from reacting, and this just seemed to piss him off more. Robert writhed on top of her, slapping her and threatening to put her in the hospital if she did not please him. All the other girls before had fought back, and that was the fun part. She assured him that she was doing her best, and that, and just as quickly as it began, it was over. When Robert failed to orgasm, he quickly lost interest. She was exhausted and in pain, lying helpless. He fell asleep beside her. If only she could untie herself, but she couldn't. She tried every way that she could imagine just to get her arms, her legs, anything undone. He wasn't asleep for very long, 
and she hoped the worst was over. But her hopes were dashed when he headed back to the Kenai Peninsula instead of Anchorage. There was something there he wanted to show her, a cabin in the woods, that he had taken another girl to. Unfortunately for Robert, and quite fortunately for Barbara, Cooper Lake Road was blocked with snow, so Hanson turned the car around. She kept quiet as he drove back down the road and deeper into the bush. Once again, he tied her wrists with the leather shoelaces and he told her to get out. They were on a cliff. He looked at her and said, Start running. And that's where we're going to end this episode this week. This is a pretty long case, and I want to do justice to the women who we are going to talk about in the second part, along with the women that we've already discussed. So I appreciate you guys being here with me this week. Please come back next week for part two, and have a great day. Bye.